in church today? Uh, was it perhaps the news report on Thursday in the Times newspaper that going to church will elongate your life by about six years? Did it, was that the reason? Going to the gym, only four years. Going to church, they reckon, on average, will elongate your life six years. Not bad, is it? Or perhaps it was to just to meet up with your friends. It's great to see friends, isn't it? Or perhaps it was so you could come and worship God. Now there's a lot of confusion today uh, about worship and the corporate gathering. Uh, from, from those coming from sort of a high church Anglican or a Roman Catholic background, it means coming to a sort of religious sanctuary, maybe a Gothic looking building where there are priests who offer up prayers and sacraments and, and um, perhaps there's lots of incense swinging around, there's, 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 there's priestly robes, perhaps robe choirs and, and buildings with altars. Or from those with a more charismatic background, maybe it means coming to uh, a place where there's this awesome band and this ecstatic singing time uh, where uh, the worship leaders, quote, bring you into the presence of God. Or to more reformed evangelical types, it can mean coming to hear a sound biblical sermon, uh, more often not an expositional sermon, where incredibly every week the text divides into three points that all start with the same letter. <laughs> what does it mean to worship God as new covenant Christians? Now last week we, we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 and it's going to really help you to have a Bible if you don't have one. So if you don't have one, put your hand up and we'll gladly bring you one. We'd love for you to have it in front of you. So keep your hand up. Or if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Hebrews um, chapter, well let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 uh, on page 1211. If you have a church Bible, 1211. Uh, because we saw last week some of the awesome privileges we have as Christians now. And what we saw is that worshipping God is, is not uh, so much about coming to church buildings and doing religious things uh, in religious places with religious professionals, but it's all about Jesus. Through coming to know and trust Jesus, we are made right with God and we can approach God. And there's an amazing contrast we saw last week uh, from verse 18 uh, down to the section there between uh, the worship experience of the new covenant believer compared to the old covenant. So we don't come, it says in um, verse 18 of chapter 12, we don't come to Mount Sinai of the old covenant mediated by Moses. We don't come standing before a scary fiery mountain of Mount Sinai where the voice of God terrified the people. Now we come, it says from verse 22, to, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Doesn't matter where we gather, we can gather anywhere, but as we're believers gather together, actually we are gathered into this heavenly Jerusalem. As those who put their trust in Jesus, as our mediator, we're invited to come into God's very presence. The judge of all. Extraordinary that we can come to the judge of all without fear or anxiety. Why is that? Because we're forgiven. We're cleansed. 
through the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And we have this joyful privilege of, of approaching in the very presence of, of Jesus who gave himself for us and who rose again and is seated at God's right hand. And so you see, we, we don't see this with our physical eyes, but this morning, actually, we're not merely gathered here in Edinburgh, but we're gathered in heaven. And if we had uh, spiritual glasses to put on, we'd actually discover that we're surrounded by countless numbers of angels gathered in joyful assembly. Uh, we are surrounded by Christians, not just in our little church, but Christians from all around the world in that heavenly place. And not just right now, but Christians from all the way down through the centuries who've ever been gathered worshiping God. This is what we've come to today. I wish, well, one day we will see this. You see, we, one day we will see this with our own eyes. But, but uh, this is what the Bible tells us. This is what we've gathered to. We've gathered into the very presence of King Jesus. And he's bringing us into his unshakable and eternal kingdom. Just look at the end of chapter 28, verse uh, 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This amazing crescendo with this call to worship God acceptably and with reverence. And then we come to chapter 13. So let's read the first six verses of chapter 13. I'm going to consider this today. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is God's word. Now keep it open. We're going to examine this. Now, how does this fit? To some it seems too abrupt. Uh, 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 and a bit of a bit some randomness to it but of course we know there's nothing random about the inspired word of God because what we have here is a description of what a Christian church who worships God looks like this awesome privilege as we gather to this heavenly Jerusalem worshiping him with all the saints and all the angels uh, in his very presence we kind of zoom back to, to the local gathering. And he describes, well, what is this, this amazing corporate gathering? What does it look like in its community life? And then we have this amazing practical section. In fact, uh, look to chapter uh, 13 and verse 15. 
Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, this is stunning. See, what is, what is the worship that pleases God? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? What is the worship that pleases God? Turns out this section has nothing to do with spires or clerical robes or organs. It's not even about having an awesome praise band with a fantastic bass drum combo, which of course we had today. It's not even that we preach biblical expository sermons. What pleases God is a community of believers who listen to his words and obediently do what he says. It's the worship of our lips and our lives, according to verse 15 and 16. Our lips as we continually, we made a great start today, but we got the rest of the week to go to continually profess his name and praise his glory and our lives doing good and sharing with others. That is the worship that pleases God. See, if you're not a Christian here today and you're wondering what does it look like, what is it that God desires, well, this is a very helpful section to look at to see what, what to expect of church life. And, and for us as Christians, uh, with so much confused talk about what worship is today, this is a very helpful section to understand what a God-centered worshiping community is supposed to look like. And it's very practical, and it's very countercultural. We'll just work through the verses. Verse 1, it starts with a loving family. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Of course, it's natural to love your own physical family, but here we are called to love God's family. So look around the room. Have a sneaky glance. This amazing mix of people. If you're a Christian here today, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters. What a diverse and interesting bunch we are. What a privilege. What a family. Back in chapter 2, we, we learned that Jesus, um, Jesus is not ashamed to call us those he's bringing to glory, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Isn't that brilliant? He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because we've been brought into the family of God and we are brothers and sisters together. And this should be obvious and palpable to anybody who walks into our gatherings that here's a loving community. Here are people who are happy to see each other, uh, who obviously love and care for each other. A God-centered, worshiping community is a family that keeps on loving each other well. And as a pastor of this church, I keep hearing wonderful stories where this is the case, where people are practically loving and caring for each other. It gives me such joy to hear about how people have gathered around those who are struggling and encouraging them. Notice that people aren't here and are visiting them. Hear about a baby's being born, or people coming out of hospital, and meals are being provided and being uh, brought along to their household. Uh, when brothers and sisters stick around for tea and coffee and you can see them praying for each other, when we love each other enough to tell each other, don't be daft. You know, it's great to be a community. That's what family does. And more significantly, uh, it, it is 
that form of worship that delights and pleases God. That's what God loves to see. Secondly, a God-centered community of worship will be marked by loving the stranger. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is another beautiful thing when you come across a real biblical church where God's at the center. It's always open to welcoming new people. There's something dysfunctional and unhealthy about a church where members are only interested in the friends they've already got and are not interested in welcoming new people into their community. And this love for the stranger is not about words, is it? Do you notice? It's about having an expandable table at home. We have more people around the table to eat meals with you. This practical hospitality that uh, enjoys conversation and shares food and shows you're welcome, you're loved. Let's get to know you. In the first uh, century, there weren't many options uh, for traveling Christians when they went into a new town. The places where you could stay were rather dodgy places. And so it was so key for Christian uh, Christians to open their homes to fellow believers so that you could find a, a safe place to stay. Do you remember in the book of Acts uh, when uh, Paul turns up, uh, was it to Philippi? I think it was Philippi. And uh, he meets a businesswoman called Lydia. And uh, when she believes, when the Lord opens her heart and she believes the gospel, the first thing she does is she gets baptized. Secondly, she proves that she's a real believer by saying, look, uh, if you consider me a fellow believer, would you come and stay at my home? She instantly opens her home as a place of hospitality and welcome to the Apostle Paul and his team. And uh, this tantalizing reminder of the stories of the Old Testament, uh, the reminders of people like Abraham who, unbeknownst to them, when they showed hospitality, they were showing hospitality to angels. It's one of these verses, you know when you do welcome, uh, people ask uh, to, to sign a, a guest book when they come to the house, always stick down Hebrews 13 verse 2 in there. Uh, cheekily, I'm not an angel, but uh, I write it down to encourage people. Who knows? There's so many unexpected blessings when we show hospitality. You don't know who you're going to meet. And when we welcome fellow believers, remember Jesus taught us? We're actually welcoming him. Remember the, the parable he told uh, of the sheep and the goats? And the Son of Man uh, comes in his glory. The king sits on his throne and, and he judges between the sheep and the goats. And uh, the sheep are amazed as Jesus tells them that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And they said, well, when, Lord? When did that happen? And the answer from the king, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Which takes us to the third point. A third mark of a worshiping God-centered community is, is, is this loving the missing in verse 3. Verse 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. This is about loving the family who can't gather with the rest of the church. Remember when the, the writer was uh, writing this letter to begin with, 
um, many of the Christians had experienced persecution. They'd been treated pretty badly, beaten up. Some had been locked up and put in prison. Some of their goods had been confiscated. And here's an appeal to the church not to forget those who are locked away. And he says, look, imagine if you were locked up in prison for being a believer. What would you hope others would do for you? Well, do that for them. Sympathetically, do those loving things that would strengthen your brothers and sisters who can't be in the church gathering. A couple of weeks ago, I bumped into a friend of mine, Gary, um, and the, the thing about Gary that always endears me to him is that he's got a picture of my wife, Shona's grandmother, above his desk, Eunice MacDonald. Now, why has he got a picture of somebody else's granny above his desk? Well, he was in prison for murder, but he became a Christian in prison. And his weekly highlight in Perth prison was when old Eunice, as they used to call her, this retired widow, used to go into Perth prison and uh, there would be the prison fellowship and uh, she would sit down with Gary, give him a cup of tea and a tonics tea cake and she would listen to him and pray with him. And he's now in gospel ministry and he never forgets the impact of this older saint who loved him, cared for him, prayed for him, visited him and he's doing amazing things. Now, it's been wonderful to hear about the impact of the Christianity Explored course uh, repackaged as the prisoner's journey in many of the prisons and what the Lord's doing there. But I think we can broaden this out to say it, we, we should be looking out to for those who, who'd love to be here, fellow members, but they're just too ill. They're too frail. And it's reminding us that a God-centered worshiping community, even as it's enjoying being together, will be loving the missing, remembering who's not here, and seeking to find tangible ways to reach out and love and connect. I love coming uh, the first um, Wednesday of the month to the seniors' lunch and to see some of our older saints who brought together. They love meeting together. They, some of them couldn't come out, but some of you guys are providing rides for them to be able to come in, have a lunch, meet together. It's a wonderful thing. It's great that Jeremy Landless and uh, Ray make sure the DVDs go out to those who can't come out on a Sunday so they don't miss out, miss out on our Sunday gathering. But would you prayerfully consider who's not here and who you can reach out to? If you were at home and you couldn't make it out, how would you hope that others would love and care for you? Well, why don't you look to do that for some of those this coming week? A God-centered community of worship will also be marked by, fourthly, loving marriage. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, this is very countercultural, isn't it? Sex outside of marriage is basically seen as normal and good, and, uh, you know, good tele-entertainment, if all the buzz about a particular program is correct. Uh, and you're basically totally weird and to be pitied if you're single and celibate. But a God-centered Christian community will honor and love the biblical idea of marriage. Because marriage is God's idea. A man and a woman publicly committing to lifelong exclusive relationship with each other. 
Sex between a man and a woman committed to each other in marriage is pure, is undefiled, it is beautiful, it is good. There is nothing intrinsically wrong or dirty about sex. It is God's idea. He loves to give good gifts. And he created us so that we can give and receive sexual pleasure and delight. And sexual attraction is something that God has built into us. It's a powerful motivating force. It's a God-given relational glue that helps two people to become one. And it is into that context that God has blessed that for the creating and the raising of children. It's amazing, isn't it? What's God's first command to the first man, the first woman? Get busy. Have babies. He blesses them and says, be fruitful and increase in number. And so marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Not only should marriage be honored because it's God-given, but because it enables human flourishing. Uh, Glenn Harrison Uh, Glenn Harrison has written this very helpful book, A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And uh, he shares in it the results of 10 years of uh, family research in a joint report from Princeton and the U.S. Brookings Institute. And he says this, uh, it's from that report. Most scholars now agree that children raised by two biological parents in a stable marriage do better than children on the daily, uh, uh, on the whole number of daily um, characteristics across a wide range of outcomes. Sex, uh, you see in the Bible, is likened to fire and water. And, and fire and water are very wonderful things when they're kept in safe places. But when these two things spill out, it causes disaster. Have you seen these pictures of the lava in, Vul- in Hawaii spilling out, consuming cars and houses, it's devastating. And we know that when uh, rivers look very pretty, but when they flood and burst their banks, bridges and homes can be destroyed. And so when marriage is honored, great blessing can happen. When marriage is not honored, when it's spurned and despised, when sexual relationships are pursued outside of marriage, whether that's heterosexual or homosexual, real damage is done to people's lives. And the most significant of all, we're told in verse uh, 4, is that it places us under the judgment of God. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And one of the the marks of of someone becoming a genuine Christian will be to see a change in their sexual behavior. The hookup culture uh, of casual sex is defiled sex, the Bible says. It damages us and it puts us under God's eternal judgment if we do not repent. And so my Christian friend, you're not going to meet a godly, faithful future spouse on Tinder. I wouldn't know why you would have that on your phone or any other social app like that. And the evidence is clear that a culture that does not honor marriage causes great damage to children. Again, Glenn Harrison, who was the the professor of psychiatry at the University of Bristol, He says in this book that divorce is not the biggest threat to children these days. It is the unstoppable rise of cohabitation. And in the UK, cohabiting couple families grew uh, from 2004 to 2014 by about 30%. It's now the fastest growing type of family structure, which actually is a big problem for children. Of course, sometimes uh, 
parental separation is simply the best option when children are neglected or abused. But this exception mustn't blind us to the, the, the bad news that splitting up households tends to have on children. Cohabiting couples can be great parents, of course, but cohabitation is, is much less stable than marriage. The UK Foundation has found uh, that independent of the mother's age or education, more than half of the couples who only get married after the birth of their first child have split up 10 years later. More than half. And that compares to only a quarter of couples who marry before having children. And where cohabiting couples uh, do not marry at all, two-thirds have split up. And so you see, we shouldn't be embarrassed about this teaching from Scripture. Honoring marriage will mean staying faithful to our spouses if we're married and remaining celibate if we're single. Because we're a community that love the ideal of marriage and we seek to honor God's intention for our human relationships. And finally, a God-centered community of worship will be marked by, fifthly, loving God and not money. Look back at verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now money is a very useful servant. It's part of God's creation but it's a terrible master. Loving money is harmful to our souls. Remember what Jesus taught? You cannot love God and money at the same time. Money can become the substitute God. The thing that gives us our sense of security, our, our uh, joy, our uh, value. It can be the thing that motivates and controls us. But when you come to know the true and living God through trusting Jesus, well, this frees us from the enslavement of loving money. If you make a study of wealth and money, what you learn is this. It will leave you and forsake you. The security and joy of money is illusory then what a thing then to know and love this God who makes this promise to us. If through Jesus you are trusting him, this is his promise to you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And then you can basically live your life with a new confidence and security and joy. If you can say the Lord is your helper, what do you need to be afraid of? Who can harm you if the living God is for you? And one of the ways that we show we, we love God and not money is we learn to be generous. We learn to give it away. We give to support the work of the gospel. Now, um, I had the joy on Friday night to meet uh, John Reinhardt and his family who are here today. And uh, John wrote a book called Gospel Patrons, if you can put on the next slide. And uh, we've managed to find, they, they must have sold very well. I could only get five copies. But we actually have five copies at the back. And I'm sure John will be happy to stand near the book area and chat with you and 
sign your book, if you buy it, that is. Um, only eight quid, bargain. Absolutely. You can only get it from Amazon for 9.99. Eight pounds, bargain. But in that book, it's, what's interesting about that book is that he, he charts how some of the great spiritual movements of God have involved this. A great Bible proclaimer who was financially supported and backed by a gospel patron. Someone with money and means who supported the proclaimer in his work. And there's some fascinating chapters giving you some bios of these guys that we don't tend to know about. But behind William Tyndale, who gave us our English Bible at great cost, was a merchant called Humphrey Monmouth. Having a kid soon? Humphrey. We don't have any Humphreys. Humphrey Monmouth backed William Tyndale. You can hear about that story. Behind George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist who powerfully shaped and influenced Britain and America, was uh, uh, this woman, the Lady Huntington, who financially supported uh, the Methodist preachers at that time. And you can learn about these stories and many more in John's group about the power of gospel patrons. And of course, when the Lord is our helper, when he is our joy, then we're going to use everything we have, including our financial resources, to do what he wants to do. Because actually, we know we're not depending on this stuff. We're depending upon him. My Christian friends this morning, are you here today as somebody who is anxious and troubled? Will you listen to what God has to say to you today? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If we let that go deep in our hearts as Christian believers today, we'll be able to walk out of here with this confidence and say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And Sunday by Sunday, my prayer is that as we gather as his people and sit under his word and learn more and more about the glory and the greatness of God, we will so treasure Jesus Christ that we will not put our hopes in the false idols, whether that's wealth or money, whether that's sex, whether that's comfort where that's even our freedom, where we'd be willing to go to prison if that's what it takes to be faithful for Jesus. Because when we understand all the treasure we have in Jesus, we will be God-centered worshipers whose lives are marked by this contentment and this confidence. And our church community will be marked by being a loving family, a place that loves the stranger, that loves the missing, that loves marriage. And that loves God rather than money. Let's pray.